we had so much knowledge and so much just day-to-day interaction with our customer that we really knew what they were looking for. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head-on. Welcome to another edition of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with Matt Meeker, who is the CEO and co-founder of BarkBox. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's great to uh, catch up, and thank you for uh, coming over here to the the BetaWorks studios to spend some time. Yeah, it's good to see you. Thank you. Indeed. Well, before diving into uh, your role at Bark, I want to really start with your background. And so in the early 2000s, you were one of the pioneers here in New York City as the co-founder of Meetup which was social before there was social. <laughs> right. Uh, and then you also uh, really were at the New York tech scene before it was that what it's become today. It was, oh, can New York be a tech scene? It's a financial capital, et cetera. What inspired you to jump into an entrepreneurial journey well before others were thinking about it here in New York? I feel like I jumped into it about five years before Meetup. So I, I came to New York in 97 and I joined a, a digital ad agency and it was boom times then and everything was going really really well and you kind of got the you caught the bug you caught the urge of this is very exciting this is a new world you saw new things rolling out day after day after day i mean i remember the day you first saw google and then you saw napster and you saw the next thing and the next thing and you just wanted to be part of it and so even though it it sort of faded away with the crash the urge never left and so it was a nice time to start Meetup or start really anything in New York. I remember us recruiting for our CTO co-founder, and in our first 24 hours, we had 450 resumes wow. submitted. That's awesome. Uh, good luck with that today off of one Craigslist post. <laughs> so it was a great time, and it just took a little bit of a pause there. Oh, that's awesome. And so, you know, when we met, you just moved into uh, the investor advisor role, kind of post Meetup, going over to be the entrepreneur in residence at Dogpatch Labs. Just like Meetup was social before social, Dogpatch Labs was kind of the center of the New York tech ecosystem before WeWork and other things had kind of emerged across. How did that EIR role shape what you're doing today? And how'd your earlier entrepreneur journeys kind of build into that? What I'm doing today wouldn't exist without that. That was a super fun role in a really unique space. We'd bring people together, teams together, one to four person teams, about 20 in a room, and they shared ideas and expertise with each other. So it was a fantastic spot. For someone like me, it was also an inspiring spot. And you kind of have this collision of all that inspiration, a new dog in my life, Hugo, who I adored, and then learning my way as an investor. And one thing I'd never had exposure to was commerce, but a lot of commerce businesses were starting in New York at that time. I'm, I'm seeing one or two pitches a day and I didn't have, I didn't have the vocabulary. I didn't have the knowledge. And so there was a collision there of let's start a commerce business for a dog in this environment. It'll be really fun. I'll learn a few things and become a better investor and make my dog happier. And it'll be cool. And that all worked out. In fact, it worked out too well. And I got pulled out of a job I loved. That's awesome. So in that job, when you were at Dogpatch, you mentioned you were listening to pitches and doing all that. So how'd you split your time in that role of looking at investor pitches, you know, wearing that hat for Dogpatch versus being a mentor to the companies that were already in there, sharing your journey as an EIR? What was that balance like? Uh, It was probably 80% 
meeting new companies and listening to that and 20% mentoring. And I wouldn't say I did a lot of mentoring. What I did in the the 80% time was look for people who were insanely great at something, someone who had great PR expertise or design or engineering and look to fill gaps in the space. And so when someone would come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about how do we get, get in the press? It wasn't me saying, Here, here's one, two, three. I'd say, go over there. That's the person you want to talk to. So I was a traffic cop, much less than a mentor. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I don't think enough people take that approach because people love giving their opinion <laughs> instead of helping with advice. Yeah. Um, no, the experts were all around the room. That's awesome. So you hinted at uh, your, your lovable guy, Hugo, uh, that was the inspiration for Bark. You, know, you were a new pet parent. You were li- working at Dogpatch. You had this soon-to-be huge dog that was part of your life. <laughs> what kind of happened at that moment when you start experimenting and trying to learn commerce? Because you were selling an idea before you actually had a business and you were taking credit card payments, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we took payments via Square off of an image. So just an image I carried around on the iPhone saying, what do you think of this idea? And then pulling out the square and taking credit card payments for it. We did that about 50 times and then had this moment of, we actually have to ship something to these people. So yeah, it was fun. It was really just about, the origination was really about Hugo and that he's he's an outlier. He's a great Dane. He's a big guy. He lives in New York City. He's not well served by a pet store where it's sort of, we have a very small selection of things for dogs that'll pass through here. And he's very unique. So it was about getting him the right products for him. And what we've what we've since learned over the last seven years is all dogs are unique. They have their own very specific needs and interests. The things we've learned are just, you'd never consider. Like, my dog wants uh, plush toys that have fur, but not hair not hair that could come off. Yep. It's a very, very specific need, and it just goes endlessly. We are today sending about 120,000 unique assortments every month, so personalized for just about every dog. Wow. And so beyond those kind of personalized assortments, you've grown a little bit. So how big is Bark at the moment? We're serving about 650,000 customers a month. We This year, we'll do about a quarter billion dollars of revenue almost all toys and treats. So there's some category expansion opportunity as well. Yeah. And we'll we'll be profitable. We are profitable, but got to turn in a full year of that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I love it. So one of the things I've really always admired about what you guys have built with Bark is your embrace of this mindset of continuous beta and how you take new ideas and new business lines and you toss them out and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, You've done everything from letter mailing clips, if you will, uh, (laughs) which are crazy. And I still use them actually today. (laughs) Uh, I've got them sitting in my drawer at home to things like Bark Post and Bark Care and even Bark Air. Mm -hmm. So what's driven you to that mindset of let's launch these new extensions, see what happens and uh, kind of build that into the cultural DNA? A little bit of just ADD and personal interest. We're, We're sort of builders and starters. And then... It's about serving the dog and serving the customer. And when you live with the dog, every day there's a new idea that springs up. There's something of like, oh, I wish this existed. So you mentioned Bark Care. That's from Hugo wanting to go to the vet or not wanting to go to the vet, let's say. 
and we go in there and he's stressed and he's having a terrible time and he's in a room that's too small for him and he's not comfortable. It's just a simple idea of would he be more comfortable at home? And are there ways that you can make that experience better for him? Flying across the country on a commercial plane just doesn't work for a dog his size. It's either in the belly and we've all heard the horror stories of when that doesn't work out. And so constructing a, a cabin that is a really comfortable experience for him and for me, it's just really about like, what could I do to make him happier? And that list just goes on forever. I love that. And so, you know, you, Henrik and Carly, all three of you have dogs. So a lot of those inspirations came from the founder. How many of those ideas came from the employees since pets are, you know, you have a lot of pet parents that work for you as well? Yeah, there are. <laughs> it's funny you ask because we we give people a lot of freedom and we see a lot of invention. And so it's it's something we're kind of struggling with right now is people have taken it almost too much to heart. And we have this wide array of products that are being created, but we feel like we're kind of inching them all forward instead of focusing on a couple and pushing those really hard with all our might. And so, so, so many, but some great ones have come out of that. Bark Post really had nothing to do with the three of us. That was one of our first employees. She was in customer support. She was a writer. She said, I want to write one story a week. And that turned into three to five to whole media property. So many, many things. At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible, streamlining operations and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. You've said you're struggling right now with the, the breath, but one of the things you guys have actually done amazingly well is been willing to shutter products when they don't work and mm-hmm. admit this was a great idea, but just something's not working out. Bark Care was one of those. Yep. So a lot of traditional companies struggle with that. Once they've committed, they're they're going all in and they're going to keep pushing. How do you make that decision when you say, okay, we're going to shut something down? And why do you make that decision? It's different in every case. Um, sometimes you make something that just doesn't resonate with the customer. So that's, that's an easier one. Bark Care is a very difficult one because People loved it. I loved it. It's it's one of my favorite products we've ever done. It was a case of our skills and our way of simply promoting it and marketing it did not align with the right way to do it for that product. We're direct marketers. We know Facebook, Google, how to get people there on sort of an impulse buy. And selecting a vet is not an impulse buy. It's it's kind of a long grind, refer your friends make the brand well-known, and then eight months later, someone might think of you. And that's the way it should be, but it didn't align with us, and we hadn't built the model to 
be that patient. So it just didn't align with where we were at the time. Doesn't mean it's a bad idea or a bad business model. It just wasn't for us at that moment. Yeah. And how quickly did you realize that? Because that's a, a stretch of a DNA. You, you knew that during the creation process. Yeah. When did you have to look yourselves in the eye and go, uh, I, we maybe need to stop? We shut it down after about 18 months. Okay. We probably knew after about six. You always, I feel like everyone shuts it down far. It lets it go longer than they should. You want to hang on. You want to take that last effort to make it work or try the, the Hail Mary and you always just let it go a little bit longer than it should. Yeah, makes sense. So speaking of uh, another change that you guys made, when you started BarkBox, you were mostly selling other people's products. Yeah. But you had this data that you hinted at earlier that is a, a pretty amazing resource. I'll never forget, I think, one of the first boxes you had antlers that were a chew toy. <laughs> and then a few months later, it was now a Bark branded antler that was out there. What led you to make that switch from going from third-party products to going to your own products beyond, obviously, the, the profit motivation? It wasn't really a profit motivation at all. That's a nice byproduct of it. It was more of an evolution. We were third-party, and you, know, you start off, you're small, and you go to vendors, and you say, I want to buy that thing, and they sell it to you. And, and then you get a little bigger, and they sell it uh, more items for less. It's like, that's great. And then we get a little bigger and the vendors start coming to us and saying, we designed this just for the box. We're like, that's awesome. Thank you. The next step in that was they come to us with that and we say, can you change this, this, and this? And eventually that turns into, we'll just hand you the designs and you give us product. And you know what? No, we'll just do it ourselves. Don't worry. So it was this evolution over the course of years that was informed by the customer where we could look at vendor products and say, that won't work for our customers because of these elements of it. And so we had so much knowledge and so much just day-to-day -day interaction with our customer that we really knew what they were looking for and could make products better and faster and cheaper than anyone else could make them. Yeah. And when you did that, you had to develop new skill sets at the company. It mm -hmm. wasn't just now sourcing as a purchasing procurement. Right. There's a lot into that. So how'd you go about figuring that out? Some of that's painful because, it, like I said, it wasn't really a plan of we're going to evolve to making our own products. It just sort of happened to us. And then you, you feel the pain and you say, wait, there's probably somebody out here who does this. So we were lucky that we had people in our network who are excellent at product design and know that process we brought in a guy from Lego who is our head of product design and had that whole experience there in children's toys, not dog toys, but has made the leap pretty well. And then you learn about sourcing and the design process. And I mentioned to you we're, we're you know, moving some of our warehouses to the West Coast. And a lot of that has to do with how quickly can product get to us and how many turns of design do we have with our partners on the manufacturing side. And just learn all those things over time. I love that. So talking about partners, you guys, you mentioned you started as a performance marketing organization, how to acquire doing a direct consumer. Over the last few years, you've started moving into traditional retail, partnering with companies like Target and others. That's been a real tension point for what I'd call traditional brands because mm -hmm. they have longstanding relationships with the Targets, the Walmarts, and that's held them back from being able to do direct to consumer. So how have you been able to balance that fine line of having a direct business, but making the retail partners 
happy with what you've created? We tend to make unique product for the retailer or for the, the channel where it's being sold. So every element of where it's being sold has something that's unique about it. In the box, people don't have an expectation of what they're getting specifically. And so it's about listening to that individual customer and their needs and then surprising them. And you can present a product in a different way in the box where on a retail shelf, you hang, let's say, a, a toy with a squeaker on it. You have to build onto the packaging, squeak me or squeeze me or something that says, wait a minute, it's going to make a sound if I do that. So people, you've got to expect people will go by on the shelf and, and interact with it in a different way. Amazon, you need really specific photography that shows every element of it and think about how people are going to interact with it. So we build product and we build collateral for every channel and experience that, that a customer is going to come across. But it's a real, that question has been, uh, I think, becoming bigger and bigger, especially on the, on the product side of things. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of those retailers very quickly getting into the game of we're making our own products and we're going to compete with those people who have been on our shelves for years and years, including us. So it's it's on us to make a better product and make a better, uh, more compelling experience. Yeah, makes total sense. So, you know, speaking of one of the things that gives you that ability to make something better and make something unique is you hinted at the the data that you have earlier. Yeah. And a lot of companies talk about data, but they don't do anything with it. You said that there's 120,000 different personalization that you do. Mm -hmm. And you're sending out a lot of different boxes every month. And it's not just big dog, little dog. It's all of that other things that yep. go into it. So that's a level of personalization that's probably a logistical nightmare <laughs> when you think about typical retail and everything else. So how have you had to structure the company differently to not just have the data, but make it a competitive advantage? Uh, yeah. And I'm, I agree with you. I think people talk a lot about data, but then can't really draw the line to specifically what they do with it. They get they get so overwhelmed by all the possibilities. And we've resisted that temptation. One of the huge things that's at the core of Bark is our is our happy team. And at its at its core, it's customer support. But it's much, much more than that. That is customer relationship. It's also data gathering, and they have a lot of flexibility. So we tend to follow that team. They're on the front lines of listening to a customer and then having flexibility to respond to them. So that's what took us into more personalization where, like you said, when we started, we had three assortments, small, medium, and large. That's great. We did that for quite a while. Our happy team started something called, well, it's got two names. They, they call it No Dog Left Behind. Uh, <laughs> but the, the internal name for it is Tailored. So Tailored. Um, it's terrible, terrible pun. Uh, but that started with them getting almost frustrated where a customer would call. And the true story of it is we had a, a customer who was ordering BarkBox for their potbelly pig. And they called in and they said, you know, we really love this. Our pigs love the toys. We'd like to give them the treats, but you've been sending a lot of pork-related treats. 
and we just can't feed that to our pig. I hope you understand. And they, that sort of hit them. And they said, I'll tell you what, from now on, every month, we're just going to pack your box here in our office and make sure that you get the right things for your pig. That was number one. And the next month, it was 19. And the next month, it was about 400. And they were they were managing this in Google Spreadsheets. They were packing boxes. They were ordering stuff out of our warehouse into the office in Columbus. And after about six months of that, the rest of us woke up and were like, what's going on out there? What are you guys doing? So we followed them. They, they had the customer lead them, and we followed them. And that led to us being thoughtful about what questions are we asking, how are we extracting data, and then how are we feeding it back into a system. And it's been about two years of evolution, and that flows through everything, through, like you said, the logistical part of it, the ordering and buying and planning. And it's been a rough two years of just changing the organization to fit that. But, wow, we've come out the other side, and it's awesome. That's very cool. So you hinted in there that uh, Columbus, Ohio is where you have your happy team. Yeah. That's where that's based. And I don't think a lot of people, when they think of Bark, they think of it as a New York City-based startup. Not one that's got you know another office that's actually, I think, larger than your oh, New York yeah. office. So with that, that's an increasing trend that we're seeing companies open satellite offices in different places in areas of historical strengths. You know, Columbus is an amazing retail town, yep. home of Limited and Wendy's and Victoria's Secrets and everything else. You're one of the few people who knows that, too. It's amazing. You know, I'm a Midwest pride guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, as you've uh, gotten into that, what led you to the decision to open up an office in the Midwest, and what surprised you as you did that? The initial idea was that you can um, you can tap into new talent base, and we were looking for somewhere that was close enough to home that we can get there pretty easily. We were looking for people who were generally friendly, <laughs> um, and. I think have a New York perception that the Midwest is just friendlier people overall. Well, we are. So okay, it's, it's good. <laughs> but we we have a guy on our team, Mike Novotny, and we put Mike in charge of all operations, and part of that was customer support. So he came in. His first thing he said, "We've got to be excellent at this," and I'm going to spend the next six months making it excellent. And it was kind of a weird place to start, but trusted Mike and. He brought us a guy and said, this is Hernan. He's going to run customer support for us. And we met him, and you meet Hernan, and you're just, everyone is blown away. He's incredible. He's the best at what he does. And it was like, great, where does he live? Columbus, Ohio. I guess that's where we are then. So we, we followed the guy. Um, if he lived in Nashville, we'd be in Nashville. If he lived in Utah, we'd be in Utah. But to your point, we, we got really lucky in that, there's so much benefit in Ohio and in Columbus. And the, you mentioned all the great retailers who have started there and the talent and the knowledge around what makes a great retail company and brand. And obviously, Ohio State is a great school and a lot of talent coming out of there across, across the board, engineering, everything coming out of there. So it's a fun place, too. Football yeah. games are great. <laughs> so uh, we, we love it. It's really, really an awesome spot. We got lucky. Yeah. And do you see that being a trend that is going to increase in terms of companies as they think about, you know, these secondary offices and the famous one, obviously, is Amazon with their HQ2 and what they're doing. But 
it seems to be a lot more prevalent that it used to be a Fortune 500. Your second office was an international office. <laughs> and now it seems like secondary and third and fourth domestic offices are kind of a trend that's happening in a lot of cases. I think so. And I think you see even more emphasis on remote working. And it was, was it Stripe recently who said that that's their next office is the remote office? Yeah. I think that's about an evolving lifestyle for people. They, they want flexibility in their lives. They want to experience different cities and different ways of living and want to raise their kids in different ways. Some like warm weather. I don't know why anyone would like cold weather, but they do. And so giving those people flexibility, but having them connected and with our communication ability and our travel ability, it's much more accessible and doable today. Yeah. Well, and there's also infrastructure that's in place of, you know, take the Columbus to New York tie. Victoria's Secret splits their employees between Columbus and New York. Yeah. So you had the infrastructure flights already going back and forth and things of that nature. That yeah. Makes it easier. Yep. Sure does. Yeah. So how do you have to change your company culture to embrace that remote nature, if you will? We, we put a lot of emphasis on keeping the offices and the people connected. And so there's, we have monitors like this throughout both offices that are essentially monitors into the offices. You have to upgrade your systems and either your Google Hangout or your Zoom or your conference abilities through the screen. You've got to upgrade that. We've rented apartments in Columbus, and so people are constantly going out. Different teams have different cadences around it, but a lot of people are there multiple times a year. And so we put a real emphasis on keeping the connection and back and forth. People from Columbus are in New York pretty regularly. I love it. So, you know, the last five, six years have been a pretty amazing ride for Bark. What comes next? Uh, new product categories for us. So, obviously, pet is a huge industry in the in the U.S. alone, over $70 billion spent. And as far as selling toys, we've, we've done quite well. We've built a quarter-billion-dollar business on toys. And there's a lot, a lot more room to run there, and we will, but it's about those next product categories. So you see some of those coming to light. We were on Amazon just before looking at we have an essentials line that is beds, poop bags, you've got some supplements selling CBD or hemp oil on Amazon. So you'll see more of those, some products in dental. Obviously, the big prize is food, so that's somewhere in our thinking. But yeah, more products for dogs. Awesome. That's right. And I know you've said you're never going to do cats, right? No. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. As a proud uh, pet parent of Wilson, I, uh, I agree with that choice. <laughs> I think that's the right move. Yeah. Maybe maybe a successor of mine will make that mistake, but not me. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, Matt, it's always a pleasure to sit down and uh, learn about the journey of what you've done with Bark. It's an amazing, amazing thing you guys have built. And yeah, thank you for all the pet parents out there for being the ones you, uh, Carly and Henrik, to go build it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the support. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.